is going to seem very, very repetitive, at least in terms of the narrative thrust, meaning chapter Joshua chapter 3, the Israelites are on the east side of the Jordan, and they're going to cross to the west side of, uh, of the bank there, and God is going to have to do this miracle of cutting off the flow of water so that they can walk on dry land across the Jordan River into the promised land. Um, it, it's that's the story of Joshua 3, and at its, at its uh, very basic nature, that is what Joshua 4 is about. However, however, Joshua 4 takes aim at setting up the importance of this crossing of the Jordan and the need to remember what is happening here in the crossing of the Jordan. And we have to understand, this is not just a logistical moment where here we have this engineering problem. You know, we need to get people from this side of the river to the other side of the river. If you ever had a high school class where you built bridges from balsa wood or whatever, that's not the achievement of this moment that they just crossed the river. You have to think of it really as the fulfillment of like 500 years of of uh, promises that God had made all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 12 when God told Abraham, promised Abraham that his descendants would live in the land, become a nation of people, and bless the whole world. That was about 500 years prior to them standing there on the banks of the Jordan River. The built-up expectation then, it's more than just that wait until Christmas. It's, it's even greater than the anticipation of celebrating 90 years as a church. It is hundreds and hundreds of years of desire, desperation, disappointment, and ultimately hope leading up to this moment. It's, it's beyond a memorable moment then for this people. It is destiny that is unfolding. And you know what? They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have cameras or anything like that to record and remember what was about to happen. So they would have to remember in a simpler and more enduring way than a Facebook or Instagram post. So Joshua chapter 4 doesn't need to exist in the sense of understanding the, the narrative of what happened because chapter 3 covers it. But for the sake of establishing that this is important, we have chapter 4, both as a reiteration of Joshua chapter 3, so even the function of it in the book is to basically cover the same ground to say this is important. You find that all the time in the Old Testament where you will have the commandment and the fulfillment of that commandment almost using the same exact words and sometimes even another restatement of what happened. That happens in Joshua. We've almost seen that already. Um, but Joshua chapter 4 really is to remind us of the importance of reminders, right? As far as our walk and our faith is concerned, the, the reminder that we need reminders. And the implication of that is what? We forget. <laughs> we are forgetful people. So we're going to walk through this a little bit. Um, I, I'm not going to, usually I will like read the whole passage and then go back into it, but I'm going to read the sections that we're going to be covering. So, you know, Usually I don't mind sort of repeating the passage a couple times throughout the course of a sermon here since it's so long. I won't do that. But let's talk about the first uh, um, five verses first. Okay. 
When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, Yahweh said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of Yahweh your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. Okay, so there's a couple different elements here. Just for background, I want to point out. Uh, we have basically three elements that are of uh, theological importance in this picture of this dry riverbed and the people crossing over. Uh, the most important one really is actually the ark that the priests are going to bear and take, uh, take across. And we already talked about that a little bit last time. But just to remind you, the ark was this very carefully constructed box made of acacia wood and then overlaid with gold had on top of it two angels who's, uh, who were positioned so that their wingtips touched each other, and it held inside it the tablets of Moses that received on Mount Sinai from God, and we would probably typically know that as the Ten Commandments, the, ta the tablets which had the Ten Commandments on it. It also, at least sometimes, we can talk about this a little later, but it had a jar of that manna which fell from heaven and fed the Israelites as they wandered through the wilderness. They had a jar of that in there. And also Aaron's staff, the head of which budded, showing that Aaron was in this uh, special position uh, as, as the really the originator of the priests of the Israelites. So his staff that had budded flowers on it was also in there. Now, likely the manna and the staff, they were in the ark when it was being transported, but when it was set up in the tabernacle, they would set it uh, one, um, like, in front of the ark. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that actually gets it to be a thing because where um, you, you lose those items as you go throughout Kings and Chronicles. Anyway, more importantly, the ark, it resided in the tabernacle, which was this uh, special meeting place that uh, the Israelites, as they wandered, when they would settle in an area, they would set up basically this mini worship center, and the ark would be in a section of it called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. And once a year, the high priest would enter in and offer the blood of an animal sacrifice for the sins, for his own sins and for the sins of Israel. And so the ark was sometimes called the mercy seat of God because it was the place where atonement and cleansing was made. So the ark is a very special, um, theologically significant, um, you know, hardware that the priests and the priests alone would carry. As they wandered through the wilderness, it would kind of uh, symbolize the presence of God leading them all throughout their wanderings and God being there with them and most importantly, God offering them his forgiveness and his mercy. Now, what would come to happen, and we talked about this a lot when Pastor Chris was going through um, Kings uh, and, and Samuel, 
is that they started to view the ark as like a talisman, like, like as if it was a magical box that if you took it in, it was like a good luck charm, and it would bring you good luck, and they were not thinking of it in the holy, reverent way that they ought to. But here, they are treating it the way they are supposed to, with a kind of reverence. It in and of itself is an item of remembrance. When you see the ark, you're supposed to remember God's mercy, his guiding, his leading, his presence. Secondly, you have the priests themselves, and the priests uh, came from the tribe of Levi, or the Levites, as they were called. The priests came from the Levitical tribe, but specifically, as I said, the, the, the descendants of Abraham. The Levites, in general, they served a special purpose. They served um, in, in sort of the holy rituals of the people of Israel, but only those who descended from Aaron could be the priests and have special service like offering sacrifices and carrying the ark. But these were men who were dedicated especially to the service of the Lord. And here also we see them. They are doing their proper function and serving the Lord in this special way. And they themselves are to be yet another reminder, a visual representation of our mediation um, that, that we need between man and God. They stood in the gap. They represented God to man and man to God. That's what these priests did. And of course, they're kind of a prefigurement of Jesus Christ's own ministry. And I should have said that about the ark too, that at the cross we have this uh, fulfillment of the mercy seat of Christ. Thirdly, we have these stones. And of course, this is kind of the star of this narrative. Um, these stones were large enough to carry on your shoulder all right, so they weren't little pebbles. They wouldn't just fit in your pocket. Large enough to carry on your shoulder. Um, don't know how much they weighed. My guess would be between, like, say, 30 and 50 pounds, because who would want, wants to carry much more than that? But it's significantly hefty enough where Joshua says, don't pick the little smallest pebble you can find. <laughs> you gotta, it's got to be one that at least is going to bear on your shoulder. Now, why? <laughs> why pick one that that big. Well, it's not, it's not to give the guys a workout or anything like that. Um, <clears throat> we already mentioned that we don't exactly know how deep the Jordan River was where they crossed, although the text does say in ch uh, chapter 3 that the banks were overflowing at this time. So it's an extra significant miracle that God had stopped the waters because it was at a, at a time when the river was pretty high. So um, river rocks then look a certain way because of the rushing water, right? Like, you know, the water passing over, the rocks tumble, and they're very smooth. So if you ever see a riverbed that's dried up, you'll notice all the rocks in there, very smooth and rounded, and um, look really nice, actually, just from all the rubbing and bouncing. They get very smooth. They're very distinctive looking. And if you wanted a, a nice big one, of course, you, you couldn't just normally walk to the middle of a river Right, pick up a big heavy one and then walk out. So in other words, you would drown if you try to get one of these big heavy river rocks under normal circumstances. So for these men to grab these very gigantic rocks is very symbolic, right? It's, it's saying there's no other way I could have got this big old river rock without drowning except that God himself had stopped the water. So, so the rocks themselves are kind of a self-witness of their origin. You would look at them and know, this is, you know, this is a, a river rock. How did you get it? It's, it's too big for anyone to have retrieved 
um, short of making the entire river stop. It testified to the crossing in and of itself. And these stones, of course, being so large, and as stones do, they can last a long time. Verse 7 implies that they would be a memorial forever, meaning that they might exist into uh, eternity. Is that, you know, is that a hyperbole? We'll get to that in just a second. Now, here's what I appreciate about this picture or using these stones as a picture. I mean, this is for children because he says, when your children ask in the time to come. So this should be a word picture, even, enough, even simple enough for children to understand because the story is very simple. There's 12 stones. Why? One for each tribe in Israel. Easy, e easy to, to explain. Where did they come from? The middle of a deep river. Look at it. It's, it's, it's huge. So it's not the little pebbles that you see on the edge. It must have come from the middle. It's round, so you know it's a river rock. Well, you know, Dad, how could you possibly get that? <laughs> the only way is if God cut off the river, son, daughter. And so I, I like the simplicity of the, the picture. They kind of testify to themselves. Now, I know the question you're asking is then, or do they then still stand to this day? Can you go see these 12 memorial stones that were set up? Well, there's no current consensus or clarity on where these stones are if indeed they still do persevere and exist to this day. The word for forever in the end of verse 7 where it says, these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever, um, it, it doesn't necessarily mean eternity. Uh, it can, especially when you use it in conjunction with God. It's the Hebrew word olam. And so a lot of times you're talking about, we're, we're going to like praise the Lord forever. Almost certainly it means like into eternity. But it can also mean something like always. Like, like always, like the... Well, I won't get into the, the grammar. Just know it can also mean just always or all the time, as in these stones will always point to what God has done until they don't, you know, exist as a memorial anymore. But the whole time, always while they are in that formation, they will testify to this. Now, having said that, my own thinking, like I said, is we don't know where this exists. There's nothing that seems to describe this that we've ever found archaeologically in this area. I tend to think that those stones must exist somewhere, that no one just like obliterated them off the face of the planet. Um, and wherever they are, perhaps in the millennial kingdom, these stones will be discovered and brought together again. That's just my own take. Yeah, please. Yeah, that, that, that's a good point. So it, it's, it's an interesting word because um, we're going to see again an, another place where the word forever is used to translate not olam, but a different phrase in Hebrew. So we'll get to that in a second. But eternal, these are grammatical, these are, these are words that have meaning in context. So we have to understand it uh, in context. Now, having said all that, we do have historical evidence that these stones did exist at some point 
and possibly how they're arranged. If you look at your sheet there, which you can write notes on the back of, but the side that has the two pictures, the top one shows you a picture of 12 stones that are laid out on the ground in columns of six. So you have two columns of six stones side by side. They kind of look like, you know, you know, if you're doing dominoes, like, um, you know, just six dots on one side, six dots on the other side, making 12. So this is a picture of uh, Har Karkom in the Negev, which is very far south in Israel. Um, very interesting archaeological site, actually, because there are lots of, like, tens of thousand rock etchings there and all kinds of different structures. So it's a really interesting archaeological site, Har Karkom, if you want to do your own reach, research on that. And uh, that's where they found this particular arrangement of stones. Um, there are a lot of evidences of the Israelites having been in the area, but whether that particular formation was done by the Israelites, we don't know for sure. <coughs> There's not any uh, markings on them to suggest their origin, but it tells you that, hey, this is something that people did in, in those cultures, and even the number 12 there, um, you, you want to think that it was the Israelites, who knows. Now, I just want to point out, those rocks were probably not taken from a river. If you look at them, they're kind of like, you know, have sharp edges and things like that. Um, they're probably not taken from a river. Yeah, it just, yeah, so that's definitely not them because it's also the region is too far. More interesting is that second picture. This is from a mosaic called the Madaba map. And this was made in the late 6th century. And although it's like a mosaic and it kind of looks artistic, uh, they have discovered that it is actually very accurate in its placement of buildings and roads. So they have, you know, looked at this mosaic and then um, they will discover something archeologically later that's represented on that, on that mosaic map. And on the map, it's, that thing is exactly where the map said. So they know that this map is pretty accurate, even though it's sort of somewhat artistic. Now, if you look in the middle there, and uh, on that picture, it's not oriented north-south. So if you look above, you see a band of water with fish in it. That's the Jordan River. So if you rotated your paper clockwise 90 degrees, you'd get the right orientation. And then you see kind of the body of water in the upper right. That's actually the Dead Sea. So if you, like, rotated it, you'd get the right orientation. And you'd see um, to the bottom right, looking at the map as, it's, as it is now, the bottom right is uh, Jericho. And um, to the left, which I think is circled, you have like a little building, and then you have 12 little white dots, right, arranged in two columns of six, sort of like that top picture. Well, if you don't know Greek, what it says above that is Galgala, also dodecalithon, which is 12 stones. So this is some kind of structure or building called or at the place of Galgal near Jericho that had 12 stones in it. So at least up until, I suppose, the late 500s AD, there was a place where either commemorating or actually housing, there was a structure or church maybe that housed 12 stones kind of in that arrangement. What has happened since then? 
We don't know. Is this actually the original location or even the original stones? Not sure. But at the least, the tradition and the remembrance of the 12 stones seem to have persevered even until the 6th century. And again, this map has turned out to be fairly accurate, and so it wouldn't be surprising if those 12 stones, at least there was 12 stones there, whether it was actually the 12 stones, uh, we don't know for sure. But the point is, it, it has been something kept in the collective historical memory for quite a number of years. The events that we're looking at here in Joshua are about 2,000 years before that mosaic, just for reference. Okay, more importantly, what do the stones represent? Sometimes in the Bible, of course, you have kind of ambiguous symbols and images. The interpretation isn't necessarily clear. But here we do know exactly what they represent and what they are intended to represent. And we see that in verse 6 and 7 of Joshua 4. When your children ask in time to come, what do, these or what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, so these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. These stones, like we already said, the natural kind of even explanation of the stones themselves is that God had done something impossible, which is to stop an entire river, make the ground dry enough for them to walk through, and they picked these stones up from the midst of the Jordan in order to make this memorial now, if you notice here, it says very distinctly that the water was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh. Not before the Israelites, not before Joshua, but before the Ark. Well, why does God command Joshua this way? Why does he frame it this way? Well, it's because the water didn't stop for the Israelites. The water stopped for God. The glory goes to God, not man. And in fact, when you look at verse 21 through 24, so the command from God to Joshua is in verse 6 and 7. But what did Joshua actually do when it came time to do this? Notice he kind of expands on it, beginning in verse 21. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For Yahweh your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as Yahweh your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of Yahweh is mighty, that you may fear Yahweh your God forever. Now that forever is not the same forever as the end of verse 7, by the way. End of verse 7, Olam. End of verse 24 is a, a phrase, uh, kol hayamim, which is all the days, for all days. So it's another way, it's a figurative way to say forever, but here, because it is referring to God, it almost certainly means like, yeah, forever and ever and ever into eternity. Now, when Joshua is communicating verse 6 and 7, what God told him to communicate to the Israelites, he doesn't mention the ark at all. Now, is Joshua being disobedient? I was thinking about this. Oh, wait, you did not say verbatim what God told you to say. Now, it could be that 
God said more to Joshua? Almost certainly. God gave lots of commands to Joshua. Not all of them are recorded. <clears throat> but here, um, while it's not explicit one way or the other, we know that Joshua is a God-honoring, God-fearing man. And in verse 14, Yahweh exalted Joshua. Um, we know that Joshua did not do anything that would earn you know, God's uh, anger or anything like that. Nothing fishy going on. So it is okay. It is the right understanding of what God was trying to tell Joshua when Joshua said, instead of the ark, he mentions Yahweh. He mentions Yahweh four times. He got it. I mean, I, I'm sure he said also things about the ark and, and the priests and everything. I mean, he wrote it down that way. I mean, this is likely written by Joshua, the book of Joshua. So it's not like he was not aware of what God told him explicitly to do, but it seems to be a fair and honest um, understanding of, of what God wanted Joshua to do to say, listen, when your children ask you about these stones, you tell them Yahweh, your God, allowed you to pass through on the dry ground. Because what's the most important thing about this story and every story in the Bible? It's God. It's what God did. It's the most important thing to remember about anything that the Bible says is that this is God that we're talking about. And if you notice, Joshua even adds two more purpose statements. He said, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of Yahweh is mighty, and so that you may fear Yahweh, your God, forever. So he gives two purpose statements about why God would do this. It's not just about these memorial stones Remind us of when we walked on dry land. Wasn't that a cool story? I mean, that was, that was crazy. Remember that? It just, I can hardly believe it. No, it is intended, that memorial, to point people to God. For those who are on the outside, for those who are not Israelites, to say, Yahweh did something amazing with this people that I cannot deny, that only God, a mighty God, could do. And secondly, that the people of God, the Israelites, might fear Yahweh forever. And that word fear in the Bible often um, is a little bit misconstrued because uh, we can think in terms of like, like a visceral fear and terror. Um, no, fear, it, it encompasses that, but it's much more than that. that. Especially when we talk about fearing God, we're talking about a whole heart and nature and attitude that's, that's of awe and respect of God. That when you see God doing something only God can do, that makes you slightly terrified, slightly amazed, but all the more wanting to serve and give allegiance to. That is what we mean by fear Yahweh your God forever. So there's an external purpose. The people of the world will know you're mighty. There's an internal purpose, but both are God-centric. You think of all the memorials and shrines that are in the world. You think of you know, the Vietnam War Memorial. You think about every single tombstone in a, in a graveyard. You think about, I, I, did I throw this away? I hope not. I got a little trophy of when I bowled over 200. <laughs> 201. 
<laughs> I'm very proud of that. <laughs> Hit 201. Um, you think of all those medals, shrines, awards, um, uh, memorials, and all the things that we want to remember into eternity. The thing is, a memorial can be knocked down. You can actually forget. We have out here a bell. I was looking at it um, today. 1976, this is in remembrance of uh, Mrs. Chandler. I happen to know this is uh, Alice Chandler's mother, who this is being dedicated to. Most of you do not know who Mrs. Chandler is. Most of you may not even know who Alice Chandler is. One day, a day might come where hardly anybody at the church, already it's the case, will know who that bell is dedicated to or why it's there. It'll just be a plaque. And I'm not saying it's wrong or bad to set up memorials. In fact, I'm going to argue just the opposite. But understand, if it is not a memorial and a remembrance that sets our hearts towards the Lord, and that memorial does. Whoever she is and whatever she does, the plaque is dedicated not only to the person, but to God. If it is not for the purpose of people knowing that the hand of Yahweh is mighty and that encourages us to love, fear, adore, worship, praise, serve Yahweh, then it is finite. And that's okay. You know, hey, 201 bowling thing, I can be proud of that. Uh, I can, you know, I can ask my kids to pass that on. They probably won't because it's meaningless to them. But all things that are done for the glory of God, that's truly what, what won't be forgotten because God will know, God will remember, but must not be forgotten, should not be forgotten. The, re- or the, the, the recipe for a good memorial and remembrance ultimately is that they communicate something about God and how we should respond to God. A good memorial service is one that points hearts towards eternity and eternal truths about how the hand of Yahweh is mighty and how we ought to serve, love, fear, adore him. Now, very curious. Verse 7 through, or I'm sorry, not 7 through 9, 8 and 9, right? And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as Yahweh told Joshua, and they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. So there's the obedience. They did it. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. So what's happening there? There's a second memorial of 12 stones, right? There's the ones where they picked them up from the feet of the priests and they carried them over and eventually to Gilgal and set them down there in a memorial. But then there's another set of 12 stones which they took and they laid at the feet of the priests who were there holding the ark while the waters were stopped. And another memorial is made there. And there they are to this day. You know, whenever... This was written, uh, we've seen that phrase happen before about Rahab. So this is talking about, this was written uh, shortly after the conquest, likely in the lifetime of Joshua, again, probably by Joshua, 
for the most part, except for the part about Joshua's death. He probably didn't write that part. But everything else up until then, he's probably him who wrote it. <clears throat> so this elicits a lot of questions. Now, he's certainly, again, not rebuked for it because we see God commending him and all that he did and exalting him. So this obviously wasn't disobedient. But notice, who did it? This, this seems like something, a Joshua idea. Joshua set up. Joshua did this. Joshua wanted to commemorate something. And the, this set of stones is shrouded in much mystery. Who is this supposed to honor? What does it commemorate? What are they supposed to remember? Um, how are they standing up in the middle of a river without falling over? Because you imagine, like, they'd have to be standing up in order for you to tell that they're still there to this day. Because if they're laid out flat on the ground like the other ones are, how would you know that they're there to this day? Because they'd just be on the ground covered by the water. So how would you determine that? You send a guy out once a year to make sure, oh, are they still there? Well, I mean, they didn't have scuba gear or anything like that. Um, it just elicits a lot of questions. Oh, maybe the river's not that deep, in which case, why did they need to cut off the waters, right? Um, the text doesn't say. <laughs> Some translations put four in verse 10. For the priests bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan. So what would that imply if you put that? Well, maybe this, insinu or this might insinuate that this is a memorial to the priests, that Joshua wanted to honor the priests because of their faithful service to the Lord and that they had done all that Yahweh had commanded them. That's a, a possible connection. But the grammar doesn't have four there in Hebrew. It's not that, it's, it's a possible way to translate that, but it's not a normative way to make that connection. The simple and honest answer is we don't have any real clarity on these stones, at least not near the kind of clarity as we have for the stones that are going to be set up for this memorial. What is then this here for? <laughs> what does this imply? Well, here's the only takeaway I can think of. This was a Joshua thing. This was a memorial that Joshua wanted to make, and it wasn't outside of God's commands. He's, he's in, in Joshua's freedom as a, a believer in Yahweh to do this thing. It's not like every single thing he did had to be explicitly commanded by Yahweh. He could do his own things, too, that he thought would aren't honor the Lord. <clears throat> and so this was a Joshua thing alone that he wanted to remember in a special and unique way this crossing on its own. And maybe it was to honor the priest. Maybe it was to honor the ark. But in his mind, it was worthy of remembrance, even if God didn't command, you need to remember this specific thing, do this. And, and apparently that's okay. And I guess, in a way, I think that gives us liberty to make our own memorials in life. Maybe there are things you want to commemorate and celebrate, like a 90th anniversary, or like the day of your baptism, or things like birthdays. Maybe you want to dedicate things like buildings, or make something to remind you of important events and people like plaques and pictures. My takeaway is that's okay. <laughs> it's not wrong to do because that's what Joshua did here. We get no commentary about it except that God was pleased with all that Joshua did. <clears throat> no other commentary uh, about that in particular. But I think what has to unite all of those things, again, is ultimately 
that we remember what God has done, that we are remembering his faithfulness. We're remembering his mighty works, remembering that God is the one who has done it, who has accomplished it. That if I were to spend, you know, the 90th anniversary talking about people, the people built this church, the pastors built this church, I would be wrong to make a memorial of that, rather to say that God had done these things. And yes, he did use people, but ultimately the glory goes to God, and we need to remember God so that the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of Yahweh is mighty, and that it might uh, elicit from us a fear, a love, a respect, a desire to serve and worship Yahweh forever. So, the priest bearing the ark, verse 10, stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that, that Yahweh had commanded Joshua to tell the people, according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua, the people passed over in haste. So just because, just because this amazing miracle was happening, they weren't allowed to like make a sightseeing trip out of it. And good thing they didn't have phones and cameras, because you just imagine every single one of them is going to have to take a picture and take a selfie. And hey, I'm going to get take a picture with me and the kids and the donkey. This is incredible. No, they're like, we need to get across this thing. Uh, let's not just take for granted that God himself is stopping all of these waters. It doesn't mean we can just sit there and, like, um, presume upon God's patience, right? <laughs> so I just like the little faith. The people passed over in haste. They, they, they were still uh, motivated um, to not just uh, take their time. God was doing something, and that meant they had to do something too, right? When all the people had finished passing over the ark of Yahweh and the peace, priests passed over before the people, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel. Remember, they were the ones who said, we're going to live on this other side of the Jordan, but when you fight, we're going to fight with you. So we're going to leave our homes, we're going to fight with you. And we'll talk about that more again, or remind you more uh, again of that late, later. Uh, about 40,000 ready for war passed over before Yahweh for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, Yahweh exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. <clears throat> That's really the core um, takeaway from, um, uh, or the core response after all the obedience and all the things that Joshua did. That's the core. Um, we're going we're gonna to circle back to it. Like Hebrew thinking doesn't always go um, build up, and the last concluding thing is the most important point. Sometimes the most important point, it can be in the middle of a passage. So uh, I think that's sort of what's happening here. So we're going to circle back to 14 to end, um, but I will read 15 to the end. And we already talked about 21 through 24, actually. So I'll just read the next few verses, and then we'll come back to 14, if that makes sense. There's mud. All right. Uh, and Yahweh said to Joshua, command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. So, all you have there between 15 and 20 is that Joshua did all that God had commanded of him. 
the priests did all that Joshua had commanded of them. But really, they were listening to Yahweh because they were listening to Joshua. And uh, the, the general tone for this is very uh, positive and that everyone has uh, done what God has expected. This is one of those rare moments where everyone actually obeyed and listened to God. It doesn't happen a lot, but when it does, you just want to be happy. I'm, I read this and I'm happy because they're going to screw up a lot more <laughs> as you read through. Like, man, why can't you do anything right? Well, here's a moment where we can sort of relish and enjoy, and that's why it's so memorable that they did all that God had commanded. And so one of the things also, when they looked at those stones, what could they also think is, man, here's what happens when we listen to God. Here's what happens when we just humble ourselves and submit to his plan. We get to walk across the Jordan River. We get to see something that, that no one gets to see. The very waters of this river stop. I mean, if we would just humble ourselves and so going back to verse 14, which kind of captures um, the, the enthusiasm and the joy. On that day, Yahweh exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. Joshua humbly did all that God had said. As we've pointed out, as First Peter 5, 6 reminds us, God will exalt those who humbly obey. Humble yourselves, therefore, underneath the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you up. He will exalt you. The pathway to God's exaltation is humble submission. And that's for all the talk of Joshua being this mighty warrior, the strong man of God. If you had to define him in the most simplest of ways, he did what the Lord asked. And God took care of everything else, including exalting him, and lifting him up in the eyes of the people. <coughs> and so we can be thankful, along with Joshua, that God was fulfilling his promises. Now here's the thing. As I said at the beginning, we can set up all the memorials and remembrances that we want to, but the problem is we are a forgetful people. That we can see God do mighty works. And I've seen God do so many incredible things in the course of my ministry. When things get bad, I can't, you know, I can't remember any of them. You know, all of a sudden, I just can't, I, I can't remember all the ways God has been faithful. There's been miracles and all sorts of things that I've seen in the context of ministry. All that flies out of my head, and I can just think, woe is me, or it's always been this bad, or will it ever get anything better? And you know what the nice thing is about pictures and you know what the nice thing is about memorials and things that are going to stand up better than my own memory? Is that you'll look at that and be, oh, right, I am being dumb. God has been faithful. God has been so good to me, to this church, to the people I love, to the people that love God. I don't want to be a forgetful person, but I am. And so what I need is for for those remembrances and those memorials. That's probably why I'm, I'm so upset to have lost that picture I keep talking about, is that I don't want to forget where we came from. You know, I don't want to forget <clears throat> that our heritage um, has extended far beyond me. I don't want to forget it. But this message actually helped me a lot. 
to start, start letting go. Because what's the most important? What am I most upset about with all that? Unless that picture was inspiring me to serve, worship, honor the Lord, and to remind other people of the very same, it's just another picture, isn't it? And it started to become kind of a, like an idol, you know, like, no, like, I just can't lose this little piece of history because it started becoming about me. Like, am I losing my mind? How did I lose it? It was in my possession. What's wrong with me? It became very much about me rather than about God. And, um, and this passage actually reminded me, you know, the most important thing is God. The most important thing is whether he's going to be served and honored and we don't need a picture. We don't need a picture to do that. We have so many other things. This is a quick list. How do we remember? How do we remind ourselves now as a New Testament church? I, I, I've got four. There's more than that. Um, but I, I'm just going to fly through these. Um, all of these, yes, we could make memorials about too. But in a way, the way <clears throat> the New Testament has a lot less like rituals and, and even structures. In fact, the, the, the main two, let's say, rituals or ordinances in the church age is Lord's Supper, which is explicitly a memorial and remembrance of Christ's sacrifice, and baptism, which is explicitly a reference to our having died with Christ and being raised, uh, raised from the dead with him. Right? They remember Jesus Christ's ministry. We have those two. <clears throat> But beyond that, beyond those two memorials, we don't have like, there's no thing like the ark, right? And I know we have a lot of crosses in our church, but none of those are like sacred or like you need a cross at your church uh, to remind. There's nothing else required. But what we see in, in, in the New Testament is a consistent reminding and remembering of people to each other. That our memorial, our greatest memorials are each other reminding each other about serving the Lord, about his hand is mighty, about fearing and worshiping him. Second Peter, I'm going to kind of fly through these, but it's just application for us. <clears throat> you don't need a photo. <laughs> you don't need an old photo to do this, to remember God. Look at Peter's last words. This is his last letter, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 12. <clears throat> Therefore, I intend always always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I'll make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So what did Peter think was uh, a memorial, a remembrance that he could pass on such that he would always be with them. It is Second Peter. It's the Word of God. The Word of God itself stands as a, as a memorial and remembrance of what God has done and how mighty he is. I mean, we, it tells us even about the memorial stones themselves. So in a way, that lives on as long as we have the Word of God, the, the, what those memorial stones represented it still lives on in us who are, in a way, um, spiritually involved in, in remembering what God did for the Israelites at the Jordan River. But Peter certainly thought that even though he's going to die, 
he could still remind them somehow. And what he means by that is through the word of God. This is 2 Peter 3, 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. And both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So not just 2 Peter, but what? 1 Peter. And guess what? Not just 1 Peter, but listen what he says. <clears throat> Verse 15. And count, Second uh, Peter 3, 3:15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So what did he think about the letters of Paul? That they were also there to remind us of what God required, as are all the scriptures. So one of the main memorials and reminders and remembrances of God and his power and our need to worship, fear, love him is the word of God itself. Second way that we are reminded, actively reminded, Ephesians 1.16, but we see this all throughout Paul's letters, especially, is an attitude of remembering in prayer. Ephesians 1.16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And it's a funny dynamic where as he remembers them, he finds things to pray about, and when he prays, he remembers them. In other words, that if we have a consistent life of prayer, we are constantly rehearsing, remembering, memorializing, commemorating the things God has done in our lives, but maybe more importantly, in the lives of other people. And so if you find yourself kind of a forgetful person about the good things that God has done, make it a consistent practice to pray, not just for yourself. Because again, you can get down on yourself and you know, suddenly forget all the good things God has done for you. But if you start thinking about other people, remembering them in your prayers, then you start to recall, oh, yeah, God has done some pretty good things for those whom I love. So prayer is another way that we can remember, remind ourselves now, not having to build memorials and, and dedications. We can do that. That's fine. <clears throat> but prayer. Third, another way that we remind and remember is, uh, is counsel. Now, First, I'll go to the first couple places, and, and it'll, it'll make more sense. This mainly is pastoral counsel that we'll see, but the implication is in the counsel we give to others. It'll make more sense in just a second. First Corinthians four seventeen, Paul says, <clears throat> let's go to verse 16. So Paul talking to the Corinthians, I urge you then, the Corinthians, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So the counsel is, you need to be like me. And so I'm going to send someone else to remind you of the things that I did. Second uh, Timothy 1, 6. Paul's deathbed letter addressed to the same Timothy that is mentioned there in 1 Corinthians 4, 2 uh, Timothy 1, 6. For this reason, I remind you 
to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Chapter 2, verse 14. 2 Timothy 2, 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. So you see this dynamic. Paul's like Corinthians. You have a hard time remembering what I did and how I served you. And you, you forgot how to imitate me as I imitate Christ. I'm going to send someone else to remind you about me. Paul to Timothy, reminding him of his own ministry, his calling. And then tells Timothy, you remind other people. Not to quarrel about words and, and, and um, do your best to present yourself a workman and so on. In other words, we have an obligation because we are forgetful people, to remind each other. A memorial, I can stop passing by. Or it can be background, just like the plaque underneath the bell out there. It can just become background, you can ignore it, it can be there in front of your face and it just loses meaning. But someone standing in front of you and saying, remember what the Lord has said, remember what the Lord has done, remember how the Lord has treated you, a little bit harder to ignore and turn off. And so that's another way that in the church we remind and remember. It's through each other reminding and remembering. Lastly, in our service. And this one is, is kind of interesting, but you see it happen at least three times. I want to say there's more, but I just these are the ones that I could remember. Galatians 2.10. Galatians 2.10. <clears throat> Paul writing to the Galatians, he says, Only... They asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Talking about the, um, the apostles, right? They asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So, remembering those who are suffering helps us remember that there are people who are suffering. To remember, you know, how good we have it. Maybe it'll help to give a couple more examples. Hebrews 13.3. Hebrews 13.3. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. In other words, if, if you want to remember why your salvation is so precious, and remember why you should be thankful, remember those believers who are in worse conditions than you the poor, the mistreated, those who are in prison for their faith. When you start thinking of them, that will help you to remember too, to fear God, that he has a mighty hand, to worship and love him, to appreciate the good things that you have. So in your service, we remember. When you actively serve and you think about serving others, remembering the poor, Colossians 4.18 talks about remembering Paul's chains, here remembering those in prison, it sets our heart to worship. It sets our heart to thinking about the things of God. When we remember them, it reminds us. So the word, prayer, counseling, service, that is the way that the church makes these memorials and remembrances uh, for each other and to ourselves. Doesn't mean you can't have a 90th celebration. I'm very much looking forward to that. Doesn't mean you can't have... Uh, you know, 
recognitions from the city and, and plaques and all those things and pictures, those are all wonderful, and I think they're good. But I think there's a reason that, in a way, God would have us to be those memorial stones to each other. Because those stones, we don't know where they are. They could be gone. Maybe someone obliterated them or something like that. But the church, the church will endure forever. We have each other. And so let us serve as memorials, remembrances to each other. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, understand that if you are not working, if you're not living your life in light of an eternity, in light of forever and ever, that what is the most that you can expect out of this life? I don't know anything about my great-great-great-grandfather or great-great-great-grandmother. I'm thankful for them because without them, I wouldn't be here. Maybe you can go back in your family tree a little further and know, but you know, at a certain point, you know nothing about your ancestors, about your, your forebears, except the general things. Oh, they, they, they lived in Korea, probably, close to Korea, Mongolia, I don't know, right? That your whole life really does not have, if you're not a Christian, an eternal meaning or purpose, or if it's not guided by an eternal forever kind of purpose, you will be lost and forgotten on this side of heaven. But that the God of heaven holds all that you have said and done into account. He does not forget. He is God. He knows everything. And he will hold your life into account. How did you spend this precious short life that you have? Did you live it in light of what God requires and what God wants for us? Or did you live it for yourself in rebellion to God? For which God must make judgment. For which God must condemn because you took the very most precious thing that he could give your life, and he squandered it and spent it on yourself. God is going to have a punishment, a condemnation, a judgment for that. But if you will turn to the mercy seat of God, which is in Christ Jesus, dying, hanging on a cross, shedding his blood for your sins, and you plead with him for forgiveness based not on your merit, but on his shed blood, he will receive you into an eternal heaven, an eternal reward, an eternal kingdom. Your name will be written forever on his hands and on his heart. And you will have an eternal destiny and promise and hope that far outlasts this world and this life. Every memorial and every stone on this side of heaven will come to an end at some point. But God, God endures, and those who trust in him will endure all the way into eternity. So put your faith and trust in him, not in yourself. You'd be foolish to do so. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for being able to remember what truly is important. Thank you for helping me get over this picture thing, although I still do pray somewhere, somehow. Um, <laughs> we can get it still <coughs> for other reasons, but now I know, Lord. What you would have us do is live lives of remembrance, that our souls would be the stones that remind one another of the things you have done. So I do thank you for all the precious people who are, are putting forth so much effort, at least in the light of this 90th anniversary, uh, to, to do such a good job of reminding us of your faithfulness. They're really the ones that are this, the memorial stones here. It's not the different things we're collecting and putting together. 
but it is the people. So thank you for each one, for each soul that reminds us of who you are and what you've done for us. And may we be that for someone else, Lord, today, this week, Lord, and do eternity. We pray your blessing on our time together, on the food that we're about to eat, and uh, we ask, Lord, that you would be glorified in it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, thank you all, and I encourage you to stay.